You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This is Strong Citizens Week at Strong Towns. We are focusing on people who have chosen to live with a Strong Towns kind of mindset. Years ago, I came across the Crash Course and its author, Chris Martinson, who I've been following ever since. Chris is an economic researcher and a futurist who specializes in energy and resource depletion. He is the co-founder of peakprosperity.com along with Adam Taggart. And you can and should follow their blog as well as listen to their Peak Prosperity podcast, which are both really valuable resources. Chris Martinson, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Chuck, it's a real pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. Thank you so much. You know, I, I think we'll do the most justice to this conversation by giving people a sense of who you are and where you came from. Specifically, I'd like to kind of frame the conversation by if you could talk a little bit about your, and I think you've called it your life before age 40. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I do have a before and after story, uh, like all good stories of transformation. Uh, before, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do, um, according to my culture. I went and got good degrees from good universities, and I made my way up the corporate ladder. And then 2000 and 2001 came along, and I had this moment of enlightened self-interest where I started saying, hey, what's happening to my portfolio, all these savings I had acquired? And I, being a curious, data-driven guy, started digging around, and I dug into the economy and, and uh, discovered a few things that unnerved me. And it became profound enough that over time my wife shared uh, my concerns, and we made some very large transitions in our life as a result of this information that we'd uncovered about what's happening in the economy, what's really happening in the environment, and particularly what's happening in the energy landscape. And, and so I ultimately quit my job as a vice president of a very large corporation uh, to start a blog. So nobody listening should, should come to me for career advice. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the wrong guy, right? You were climbing the, the corporate ladder in a sense. And I, I know you talked at one point about having you know the, the nice house, the big house paid off and, and kind of running the rat race. What, what was it that cued you in specifically you know, in, in kind of the fog of that life that, hey, maybe this isn't all it's cracked up to be? Well, you know, I wish I could tell you there was one blinding spiritual moment, but, but it, it was just creeping up on me that, that the life I was leading was, if I could put too fine a point on it, was a little bit pointless, right? I was, I was working hard, accumulating money, helping big companies make the same mistakes they made the year before and make little progress. And, and once I discovered, Chuck, what's really happening out there in the world, what the real trends are in terms of population, resources, energy, um, the fact that we print money out of thin air, these were all blinding revelations to me when I finally unearthed them, uh, in, in part because I couldn't believe I hadn't been taught these things anywhere along the way, that I had to discover these for myself, because these are really big, important trends to be aware of. So the before story, living in a big house, five bedrooms, on the coast, uh, waterfront, you know, I've got a big boat to slip, uh, all of that afterward. You know, my wife and I are renting for a period of six years a, a house one-third the size in a rural place in Massachusetts, and I got a kayak. So the information I came across that I share with the world now professionally, is, it has really had a huge impact on me. I discovered you through the crash course, which I think is, is where a lot of people first 
hear about you. The crash course for, for our listeners is a video series and, and you put it ultimately into a book, which I, I highly recommend both. I want our listeners to grasp some of those weighty issues that, that you struggled with. So could you give us an, a broad overview of the three E's? I'd love to. The three E's are in order, economy, energy, and environment. And there's an honorary fourth E in there, which is called exponential growth. Our economy, once I really understood how it worked, now listen, you're talking to a guy, you know, I went to Cornell, I got an MBA in finance, they taught me everything about, you know, economics, but they failed to teach me the most important part, which is that it's founded on a system of money that is either growing exponentially or it's threatening the collapse. 2008, scary time. 2009, very scary. All that happened really in our system was that credit stopped growing exponentially, and that alone almost destroyed the whole system. So here's, here's what the, you know, the, the one-sentence summary of the crash course is that the next 20 years are going to be completely unlike the last 20 years. And the reason for that is we can no longer figure out how to grow the world's economy at the required rates to support the money system we have. There's a collision coming. Uh, I think it's going to be very disruptive. But really, you know, to understand why I think the economy can't grow infinitely forever, all you have to do is trundle over to the environment and look at, I don't know, oceans that are depleted of fishes or aquifers that are drained or the fact that soils are being depleted and flushed to the oceans or the energy story where we are still 80% dependent on fossil fuels. Those have a lifespan. They will deplete. They will. They are finite. And nobody in, in, at the higher levels of our country or even the world is really talking about this collision between an economic model that de- demands infinite growth and a world that clearly has limits. That, that piece is not being talked about. And that's uh, why the crash course was born, because I, somebody had to say it. I, I think the most profound moment for me watching the videos, because I mean, I, I've got an engineering degree and I studied exponential growth functions and I'm, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, maybe this makes a lot of sense. But you had the one video where you showed the, the copper and uh, said, you know, this is what a copper nugget looked like a hundred years ago. You know, we could walk around and just find these things lying on the ground. Here's how we're getting copper today and understand that our economy requires, you know, more copper next year <laughs> than we have, you know, pull out of the ground this year. Can you talk a little bit about that, you know, maybe that particular insight, but but how that exponential growth thing really changes the way we need to look at our economy. Absolutely. This is really um, one of the, the least understood concepts. And, and Albert Bartlett was a, a math professor out of Colorado uh, University. He just did a fantastic job of, of explaining this. And, and it really goes like this. We live in an exponential world, and we know this because we, we read about it every day in, in the newspaper. We open it up and we say, oh, the economy grew 3% last quarter, right? Or you know, car sales were up 10%, or population expanded 1.5% last year. Well, anything that's growing by some percentage over time is growing exponentially. And it could be 1% per 100 years or 10% per minute. It doesn't matter. And so once I really understood that we have this need for exponential growth, and I got my head around that, because I had a lot of math, too, um, in my science training, but somehow this concept hadn't really struck me like it did once I started to, to understand how our economy works. And, and it's simple, like if somebody listening, it works this simply. Let's say your town has said, hey, we'd like to grow 5% a year. You know, that, 
seems reasonable, and for growing 5% a year, we'll be creating enough jobs, and everybody will be happy, and we'll feel prosperous. And that doesn't sound all that dramatic, 5% a year. You know, if somebody said, I'll give you 5% off your next pair of jeans, nobody's jumping in their car and racing off for that special, right? Right, Um, right. But 5% a year, if we just use something called the rule of 70 or the rule of 72, I'll use 70 because I can do it in my head, we would say, um, if we wanted to answer this question, how much time would pass before something that's growing at 5% per year, how long before that's fully doubled in size, twice as big as it used to be? Useful if you're asking that question about a portfolio for of money. But in this example, we would say, wow, 5 into 70 goes 14 times. That means that in this town that set this seemingly modest goal of growing by 5% a year says that in 14 years, it wants to be twice as big as it currently is, right? Twice as many schools, twice as much sewage treatment issues, twice the size of, uh, of the police department if everything's scaling appropriately, um, twice as many cars on the road. Okay, so our town has just doubled in size, but if it keeps on with that 5% growth in 14 years after that, it's now twice as big again. So somebody who's born in this town, by the time they're 28, their town is now four times as large, right? right? And then it's eight times as large, and then 16. And so any sixth grader can sit down with you and go, okay, eventually that has to stop, right? Which means we can't keep growing by some percentage over time. We just know this mathematically. You just run out of room. So the question doesn't become, is growth the right strategy to pursue? The question becomes, how do we want to manage ourselves into some form of sustainable, stable existence? Because the growth phase of humanity was wonderful, beautiful, it did a lot of things. But we're, the people listening to this, we're alive in a time when that old narrative is no longer the right one and it's breaking down. And we have to figure out how we want to inhabit a a different new story, which is not wrapped entirely around growth. I don't want to diverge into politics, but but I do want to ask you to react to one of the memes that I've heard. You know, I think like you and I think alike on this in the sense that I find our current like political debate to be a silly sideshow at best. But there's a there's a thing that I read, you know, just pointing out that debt has doubled under the Obama administration. I mean, it was put out there as, you know, look at this reckless spending, but yet the doubling of debt is part of that exponential function, right? I mean, we, we should actually expect if it's President Trump or Sanders or Clinton, that, that debt's likely going to double again to $40 trillion in the next eight years, right? Absolutely. It would have to, or the system would, would go through extraordinarily painful adjustments because the system, the entire, and by the system, I mean the whole thing, the system of government, of military expenditures, of economic expansion, all of that, all of that is tied to uh, this expansion of credit, and credit is how we get money in our system. Most people are unaware that if you go to the bank and you take out a $200,000 mortgage, they didn't have 200000 lying in an account somewhere they handed you. They literally created that money, that 200000 at the moment you took out that loan. So debt and money are connected. It's a concept that I, I go to great detail in the crash course because it's important to understand how it works. The reason I think you're exactly right, it doesn't matter what president we have next time, completely independent of any ideology or partisanship, the debt is going to keep growing because that's what the system, which is more powerful than our political system and and wants and desires, that system is going to keep expanding until it can't. And this is why I'm on my little horse doing my Paul Revere Act, which is waving my hand going, hey, people, when that system of money starts to break down, it's going to break down very disruptively. That's what history says at any rate. 
it's kind of one of those either we change on our own terms or we change on some other terms, which is a euphemism for, wow, that could be really awkward and unpleasant. I think we could talk about the three E's. I mean, you, you've done hours and hours on this, and I strongly recommend that our listeners go and uh, delve into the crash course. But I want to switch to your book, Prosper. And the full title is Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. Y- you and Adam wrote this book. I read it. I found it incredibly empowering and actually really optimistic. I wonder if you maybe could start by just contrasting that life you had before 40 with kind of an overview of of what life after 50 now for you is with this kind of new prosperous set of, of principles. Well, I'd love to. So, so you know, we started all of this with the crash course, which is the problem definition side. And obviously, I could wade around in those waters a long time. But um, problem definition or information that doesn't lead to action is just is just useless anxiety-producing stuff. So, uh, Adam and I, over the years, we've spent a lot of time in seminars, in our own lives personally, which I'll get to in a second, and um, online working with people who wrestle with this information of how the world is changing and ask this very important question, which is, well, what should I do? What I did in my own life was I sort of went into a uh, more of like the Gandhi side of things and said, I think I have to become the change I wish to see. It's a, it's a matter of integrity for me. I, I don't ever write about or advise people to do things I haven't done myself. Um, but as well, it, it, was, it felt like the right thing for me to begin doing is to figure out how to become more resilient, more well-insulated against the shocks and travails that might come, but also to increase my quality of life while I was maybe trimming my standard of living as measured by stuff, right? The, you know, classic stuff. So uh, Prosper is really uh, the, the written form of what Adam and I and a lot of our readers have, have gone through in terms of transitioning their lives piece by piece, taking steps away from what I'll call classic American consumptive lifestyle into something a little bit more fulfilling, a little bit richer, a little bit higher quality, as it were. So if somebody came to my house and and looked across my yard, they would see a standard two-acre suburban lot with a a cape on it. But in the back, you know, I've got a 50 by 70 foot garden, and I've got an orchard, and I've got some bees, and I've got chickens. And when the spring finally comes, people would notice that this is an extraordinarily beautiful uh, landscape I've got that is entirely abundant and edible and, and or good for pollinators or whatnot. And, and so in that, in that story, there's a really important thing, Chuck, that I came across, which was uh, discovering that myself, but humans in general, we can be extraordinary agents of abundance and, and regeneration. Like we can use our minds to that end, or, or we can build golf courses and spray pesticides on them and be maybe sort of the opposite of that story, but um, we can choose a very different path than I think has, has been sold to us is the way we are. You know, humans show up and species disappear and the waters get fouled. Like, that's a story which is true if we choose that story. Right. Uh, prospers about the fact we can make other choices, too. In the book, you you divide your thoughts into different forms of capital. And I, I found this a very fascinating way to look at things. Can we go through some of these? I'd, I'd, I'd like to start with financial capital. And I feel like one of the major insights you had there pushes back on this notion that, well, if I just get mine now, you know, if I just get enough money now, 
uh, when things crash, I'll, I'll be fine because I'll have more money than everybody else. Money doesn't equal resiliency necessarily in your world. I mean, could you talk a little bit about financial capital? Absolutely. We have a quote in that chapter, which is, none are so poor as those who only have money. <laughs> right. And, and uh, that, that's an absolutely true quote. Now, the eight forms of capital is a, a based on a body of work that we found in the permaculture field. A couple of uh, brilliant young guys, um, Ethan Rowland and Gregory Landua, they have a book out talking about these eight forms. We took that, modified it a bit, and I love the idea uh, because financial capital is what everybody thinks of when you say capital. And, and that's an easy place to start. And by the way, it's the most common place for people to start. And it's even where I started my own little enlightened self-interest story from before. When we ask that question, what should I do? Because look, we, we, we work hard. Um, we do, you know, we, it's a real act of heroic sometimes to even set aside some savings. And we don't want that to just evaporate and go away, right? So securing your finances is, is we spend a good amount of time on that form of capital in the book. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of advice in there, uh, specifically around how people can begin to get their arms around their finances and, you know, develop a balance sheet and, and a cash flow statement and, and understand where their expenditures are. And then we say that the money that you, you do have in the markets needs to be managed extremely well and carefully for return of, not return on principle, given the risks we see in the world. So, you know, that, that, that piece aside, we also say people should set aside a portion of their financial capital to begin pouring it into other forms of capital that are as important or more important than financial capital. I want you to talk about, if you would, the living capital. I did, I mean, this is the next one you had in the book after financial. And I, I thought it was a really good transition because you, you do suggest early on that, hey, one of the things we should do with our financial capital is actually start building some of this living capital. So what what is living capital and, and how can we go about building it? Well, living capital is anything that is going to support you and your life, right? So, you know, I mentioned some before, as I look out my window, uh, I can see my garden and the rich soils that I'm building up carefully over time using financial capital to say buy compost and put that compost on every spring so my soils are getting deeper and deeper and richer. And living capital as well is your body. Uh, so we can spend more of our money to buy healthier foods that we eat. Uh, turns out you are what you eat. Uh, or maybe to get a gym membership or other things that would help support more fully, uh, you know, getting into healthy shape. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm much healthier today than I was 10 years ago. Uh, which is, you know, hard to say at this age, uh, but it's true. It's funny because I'm friends with Jim Kunstler. <laughs> he kind of gave you a little bit of ribbing uh, in a sense and said <laughs> he was complimentary. He said, you look really good now. But uh, he did it in his typical Jim Kunstler way, yeah. which was a backhanded because you were kind of overweight before. One of the advantages is you, you're feeling better, right? Absolutely. Feeling better and looking better. And, and uh, it all it all goes together. Um, and, and, uh, you know, part of that story was, you know, this is the depth we go into in the book was, was for me was going to a naturopath, getting a whole bunch of data, had a bunch of blood work done under, you know, got a food sensitivity test, discovered that I was eating foods that were inflaming my body, not grotesquely with hives. So you would notice it, but just eating like everybody else was in a way that turns out that for me was just creating low levels of inflammation that led to a variety of things like joints that hurt and low levels of energy and things like that. 
And so just shifting what I eat, not this isn't a diet, this is more like an eating regime, but understanding really the impact of the foods I was eating and the, the impact those were having on my body and shifting away from those was one of the better things I've done in, in the last 10 years. It, was, it had extraordinary profound effects uh, for me. And, and so in this uh, chapter on living capital, yes, having your body in shape is not, I do that, you know, for a couple reasons. One, if some sort of harder future comes along, I'll be, it'll be better for me to be in shape than not. But today, it actually is an extraordinary uh, input to my perceived quality of life and happiness today. I want you to, if you would, talk a little about material capital. And and as I was going through this chapter, it, it seemed to me like there's a lot of insight for me in terms of the clothes I buy. I grew up in a small town and, you know, we bought a lot of our clothes at the big box store and at the mall. And you you could get a lot of stuff really cheap, but a, a couple of times through the wash and it's not really worth anything anymore. I started a few years ago buying what what for me at the time was really expensive clothes. Like I can't believe I'm spending this much on a shirt or I, I can't believe I'm spending this much on a pair of pants, but I still have them. Like I still wear them all the time and, and they're in good shape. You have some insights on, and I'll say how we can be better consumers. I, I know you don't buy into the notion that we're primarily consumers, but when we do have to consume things, what, what are some of the things that we can and, and should look to do to make sure we're building up that material capital. Well, sure. That just uh, from the outside in, your material capital are, are, are just the things you own. So you mentioned a few, which are clothes, but it could be your car. Um, for me, it's my house, my homestead, uh, the insulation that's in it, the solar installations I have, both thermal for hot water and, and photovoltaics. Th- those are my material capital um, investments. And, and so here... One of the things we're doing with a lot of these forms of capital is inviting people to reconsider this idea of investment. So, so you, don't, you might think of clothes as an expenditure, but you're actually telling me that you think of it more as an investment now, right? I spend right, money right. And, and, and they last longer. So, so this is truly an investment in something that, that's better uh, for you. you. You enjoy it more, it lasts longer, all of that. And so one of the concepts in this chapter that we promote is, is cry once. Right, and this came to us from a, a gentleman on our site who's got a lot of military training, um, and, and it was sort of a motto he picked up there. But cry once means spend the money today. You're going to spend more, so you're going to cry, right? But you're going to buy something of much higher quality that's going to last longer, and you will find that you have a lot more enjoyment of that particular thing, whether it's a piece of art on the wall that you really enjoy, or a rug, or it's a shovel, or what, whatever it happens to be. But if you really buy the thing that it's of higher quality, higher utility. It's well-designed. I'm not saying you have to spend more to enjoy something, but if, if that's the choice and you have the choice between the cheap thing from, from China and the more expensive thing from somewhere else and you, you, know, you look at them, we would invite you to consider buying the more expensive piece if, if that's the right choice so that you can, uh, you can really both enjoy that and have that thing in your life for longer. You know, I'm really jealous of the fact that my grandmother bought one toaster and that I didn't take it when, you know, it was time to divvy up the house possessions when she passed on, right? Right. Like nothing in my life lasts that long anymore. So I I am constantly on the lookout for things that I can buy that that have the greatest durability. 
th- there is a certain sense, and I, I saw this with my grandparents too, that yes, they, they would have things for a long time. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if it is the quality of our production techniques today or if it's the planned obsolescence or if it's just the fact that we are, because we are such consumer driven, we tend to want to consume more than, than higher quality. But I, I do struggle with that same thing. The toaster is a really good example. My, my grandmother had the same kind of pots and pans for a long time and, and they were in really great shape. And ours, yeah, you know, we've had for a decade, but they're beat up and they're ready to, to kind of be moved on. Is, is there something there with maybe, uh, you know, simplified down to quality over quantity? Well, absolutely. So, you know, the heart of capitalism is selling more and more, and it's no secret anymore that planned obsolescence is a part of every design feature out there. There, There's no company that's interested in selling you a toaster that'll last 60 years, so they don't. Could they make one? Absolutely. We used to. It's It's actually not hard. As an engineer, you'll know that you can engineer something to go through 100,000 or 300,000 cycles if you want to. But we don't do that for a lot of obvious reasons. And, you know, one of the bigger ones is the profit motive. So, yes, you know, some things are of a higher quality today. I would think, you know, uh, cars made in America much better today than 20 years ago. Um, But generally speaking, the things we buy are, are designed to last a short time. And that's just part of the thinking. So, Also, in the material chapter, um, what we're inviting people to do is take the other side of it, which is not what do I buy, but maybe what do I not buy, right? So there's both things I would like to introduce into my life. These are the new things that I would like to get that give me greater enjoyment, more resilience, but also what can I do without? And, And there's quite a lot that's been introduced into our lives that your grandparents and mine didn't have, and they seem to get by okay. So that's the flip side of, of the conversation to have. I want to talk to you about your garden. And I, I have a garden. And for me, it's a hobby. Uh, I grew up on a, a farm and my, my parents still have a, a, a rather big garden. And I feel completely incompetent when I compare myself to my dad who, you know, has this big garden and, and grows a lot of stuff. I've actually talked to my dad about it. And he has said that he feels completely incompetent compared to his dad who actually grew food that they ate. I mean, that you know, if they wouldn't have had it, they would not have eaten. Is there something really important in terms of our own resiliency when it comes to gardening? Well, absolutely. You know, during the World War II, there were these victory gardens, and, and, and the country ramped up and grew a substantial portion of its, of its vegetable food in particular during that period of time on, on you know, converted lawns. That would be a harder thing to do today because very few people actually have the the knowledge of how to do that. You know, um, a mistake is thinking, oh, to make a garden, I would just create some bare dirt and I put some seeds in and stuff will grow. You know, is your own father's and grandfather's, you know, that lineage experience, you've discovered that there's been sort of a attrition of knowledge as it's gone down yeah. through time. There's actually quite a bit of knowledge involved in gardening. I'm a 30-year gardener and I'm still, I kill stuff regularly. And, and so it just does take time. And, and uh, you know, I have a story in, in the book about, you know, uh, when I went to this local organic farmer, and the guy's great. He just, his place is just a garden of Eden. And I asked him, you know, if he could teach me, really, you know, I, I want to get up the curve quick. Like, how would I learn quickly? And so I asked him how long it would take. And he said, oh, it would take about 10 years to get, you know, reasonably confident. <laughs> right. I said, oh, no, 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 I'm a really smart guy. I'm really smart, and I learned very fast. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, uh, uh, it'll be uh, 10 years. I'm like, well, no, hang on. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm 
feel a little offended, like, no, I don't think you understand. I'm a pretty quick guy. And he said, no, no, it's 10 years because, because, you know, you could come here to my farm and learn my stuff probably very quickly, but as soon as you went a mile away, your soil is going to be different and the bugs are going to be different because of those local surrounding microclimate of whatever trees and stuff you have there. So you're going to have to have the year where it rained too much and it rained too little and the yellow bugs you'd never seen before came up and on and on and on. He said, it just takes time to learn your particular spot, not just gardening in general, but, but there's a, a thing that matters when you're in relationship with your land, your soil, your local environment uh, that really actually matters. Um, so it, does, it takes time. It just takes time. And, and there's a, uh, more failures than successes at the beginning. And that's why I would encourage anybody who, who has the thought in their mind, oh, if I ever had to, I'll start gardening. Mm, nope. You, you might want to try it today. And by the way, it's one of my greatest sources of, of joy uh, for me. I, I love, I just love planting stuff and growing it. And um, quality of life issue for me as much as anything. One of the things that I really love about the community of people that you've kind of collected around peakprosperity.com is is the the idea that there's a, a whole bunch of people kind of resurrecting these lost um, traditions or lost crafts in a sense, not only gardening, but, but other, you know, woodworking and, and other kind of things you would do with your hands. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering in the future that you see for the United States and, and the world, are those things going to become more important? Do you, do you think that learning those kind of crafts is going to be something that would have more value than we place on them today? Well, absolutely, and, and now we're uh, in a chapter which we call Knowledge Capital, which includes both the things you know and hopefully the overlap in another circle with the things that you've done, the experience you have. Uh, so book learning alone is, is kind of insufficient, and, and, but as well, just, just having a, a practice craft without having a larger understanding of how it fits is not as, as optimal as having both of those at the same time, you know, a good grounded understanding plus the experience. And so here, you know, we're really, I guess, talking about skills. We highly advise that people develop a lot of skills, as many as they can. Um, not that you have to develop all of them, but find the ones that really work for you. And there's a lot of different skills out there. I mean, you know, when we say skills, people think hammers and carpentry and stuff like that. But, but there are skills in, in uh, relating and emotion, in helping people with their emotional processing. There are skills in, uh, so I, mean, I guess there's social skills, physical skills, financial skills, all these different skills. And everybody's going to have a different gift that, that really um, they can bring in this moment in time. And, and so we would invite people to begin really bringing those gifts out. And that feeds back over into, as well, this idea of entrepreneurship, which is something that both Adam and I are, are adherents of, practitioners of, uh, working to have our own children become more, more conversant in. Um, because uh, an entrepreneur is somebody who knows how to spot a place where they can add value at any point in time, right? There are entrepreneurs in prison, in places with no money, in, uh, you know, in, in capital society. It doesn't matter. It, there, entrepreneurship is more of a, a, a focus and an attitude than, than a specific thing you study. Um, and, and within that, you know, you have to uh, go through a process of figuring out what you're good at, what you're not good at, which is part of this whole process of gaining these skills. So, you know, if somebody wants to learn how to distill whiskey out of sour mash, that's great. If somebody else wants to learn how to really support people in time of grief, that's fantastic. Whatever these, these skills are, 
we think these are going to be really important. And I wove it back over to entrepreneurship because one of the key pieces of advice we have for people is to not be wedded to a single source of income. Uh, you know, if you just get that one paycheck from that one place and you lose that one job, that's a tough place to be in. And the future we see, if you add up all the three E's, it basically says the practice our country is going to follow and a bunch of others as well is we're going to drive this ship until it, until it hits some rocks. And when it does, you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of upset people and we'll have another financial crisis or however this manifests. But the bottom line will be that it's going to be a little bit trickier to get by. It's already tricky for a lot of people in this country. You know, for example, you can't believe the inflation statistics, right? Anybody who's earning the median income in this country knows that it is a lot harder to make it on that median income today than it was five years ago, right? Or 10 years ago, right? It's just, that's part of it. And that, that erosion of ease is a process that's already happening and we see it continuing. And one way to combat that is to, um, trim your expenses as much as possible, which could involve growing some of your own food, having your own skills, not paying money for things you don't have to, doing without things you don't really actually need, and as well, figuring out other ways you can add value so that you might have different forms of income streams. And some of that income might be money, and some of it might be coming to you in other, other forms, such as swapped exchanges of, of offerings to each other and things like that. So this is, you know, all sort of bleeding over into social capital as well, which is, uh, you know, a, a really incredibly important form of capital, and uh, we think going to be one of the larger determinants of, of how how much people thrive versus survive, how happy they are, how fulfilled they are, both today and in some possibly uncomfortable future. Well, I, I've heard you actually advise people to move if they're not in a place that is, uh, you know, healthy and strong. How, how important are neighbors and how important is the community that you live in to your overall resilience? Essential, absolutely essential, both, you know, today and possibly tomorrow. Uh, so, so, you know, if I lived in a place, you know, I, I posted a, a video, I don't know, a month ago on my Facebook feed because I came across it of, showing uh, the police in Oakland, California, at night, just terrified, like just driving away from a situation where there are a bunch of young gentlemen on a corner shooting pistols into the air, right? Uh, the cultural capital that exists in Oakland, California, in certain sections right now, is such that it's already risky, even for law enforcement officers, to be out and about in the dark of night. Now, that's not a place I would personally feel um, either comfortable or that I would have much agency in being able to change that, so I would advise myself if I lived there to move, right? So we get to choose, and if we're living in a place that has really low um, social fabric and maybe even a dangerous environment today, that will only get worse in the future. It would be a fairly easy, not even a prediction, but that a trend extrapolation. That's just an observation, right? So, so there are times when we would say, yes, there are... You know, local mileage varies tremendously in this story, and, and the decision my wife and I made is we moved away from Mystic, Connecticut, which is postcard perfect. It's a little tourist town. It's got these whaling ships. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a tourist destination, but it had really low social cohesion for us. And we moved to a place in uh, central western Massachusetts uh, with a lot more community, a lot more social cohesion, and we were able to plug into that, and it was the best decision we've ever made I mean, I like the soil, I like the, you know, others, but what, was, what really makes this place sing for us is the, is the community of people that we were able to plug into and begin to um, 
weave those social ropes with. I have to say, going through the crash course and early on when I was getting introduced to your work, I got a worksheet that you put together saying, you know, here's, here's kind of some checklist to build your own personal resiliency. And I, I went through it and it, like right away it said, meet your neighbors. I mean, do you actually know like the person living next door to you? And I, I knew them in an abstract way, but I, I didn't know them in any kind of intimate way. And your worksheet prodded me to, to do that. In some ways it's obvious, but why is it so difficult for us? And, and why maybe was it so hard in the community you left and so easy in the, much easier in the place you're in now? Oh, great question, Chuck. So, um, well, so on a larger level, uh, one of the main critiques that, that I have, uh, sort of Kunstler style in all of this, is, yeah. is, that, uh, is that our culture has really been set up and optimized for certain things, but it's very transactional in nature. It's very extractive in its approach, and it's very much um, non-regenerative. And so one of the more common complaints, if I could use that word, or or difficulties that people will relate to me is that they feel lonely. They feel really isolated. Even if they live on a street full of people, they don't know them. And that isolation gnaws at them and they internalize it because that's our culture. Our culture says, oh, if you're not happy, it's because you're, you're, you're making a mistake somehow. Or if you're poor and you're under bridge, guess you messed up, right? Um, but the truth is we have a very isolated culture and our human blueprint, our, our DNA is, is to be relational and it's to be connected to each other. And so one of the things, I, I think we've done this wonderful experiment with having highly cost-effective, isolated, consumer-driven culture, but the, the future has got to belong to getting back into actual relationship, not just with each other as humans, but that's the first step, but with the larger world as well, to be back in relation with, with all of life. And, and so that's really, I think, where the pendulum is swinging and of course, it's really hard for an old dog like me who grew up under a really nuclear isolated family structure to begin to experiment with like, how would I do this differently? You know, I just, that's how life is, right? So it takes a little courage and it, and it takes a little uh, uh, willingness to be vulnerable, but absolutely those, you know, daring to be both of those things has been hands down one of, one of, the, one of the larger uh, inputs to my emotional health and my sense of well-being and connectedness. So, so there's really a little invitation here, which is like, hey, wake up, let's get back into life, you know, because, you know, just, just buying stuff and accumulating money for some downstream dream of retirement is, is living for the future instead of the present. Well, and here we have the engineer interviewing the scientist, and we're talking about <laughs> neighborhoods and community and emotional health. I want to ask you about emotional capital, because it, it's one of those things that you expect to find in a self-help book somewhere, you know, touchy-feely kind of thing. Yet you, you do draw on the serenity prayer and some other things that you wouldn't expect to find in, in a book written by a scientist, uh, how important is emotional health, and, and why have you why have you focused on it as intently as you have in this book? Oh, Chuck, I'm glad we got to this point because sometimes um, in these interviews, people evade this one um, because it, it feels a little touchy feely or something. Yeah. But emotional capital is the most important form of capital. I could give you somebody who's rich in all seven other forms; they're just knocking the cover off the ball in all of those. But if they fall to pieces 
at the drop of a hat or at the first whiff of actual difficulty. It won't matter how rich they are in the other forms. And this is a really critical part. Now, now when I first started the crash course, this was all data and information. I'm a scientist, you know, and a little bit of guy. You know, I'm just a guy. Like, oh, I, if I just be rational, <laughs> this will all work, right? Um, right. And uh, turned out it didn't. So, you know, what I discovered was that we humans are really operating with belief systems. And these belief systems are a little bit like narratives. That, that they're just stories that run in our head. And so... If people hold a story as simple as this, if somebody holds a story that says, I'm, I'm lucky, it turns out quantitatively we can measure their life turns out very differently from somebody who holds this belief, which is, I'm unlucky. Now, how is it that holding a belief can, can actually shape this person's destiny, as it were, uh, but it turns out it does? And this is a, there's maybe a little woo-woo new age stuff in here, but there's scientific stuff we're discovering all the time, which is that... Um, because we hold a certain belief, we see some things, and we reject or even don't see other things. And so having a belief system uh, that's, that's working for you, in the case of a lucky person, turns out to have measurable, wonderful effects compared to somebody who has a belief system that works against them. So here's how this ties together into this. The story we give in the book is, is of... Uh, the former USSR, 1989, fall of the Berlin Wall, this, this Soviet juggernaut falls apart. Big economic crisis. The major, formerly economic superpower collapsed. So we have a case history of one. What happens, right? So it devolves into Russia and the satellite states. And in Russia, over the next eight years, between 1989 and 1997, 54% of all deaths recorded in Russia had alcohol listed as, a, as either a, a, a causative or proximate agent as the cause of death. What's 54%? You know, a normal country would be 4%, right? right. Um, it's astounding. And, yeah. and Russia drinks hard, but boy, that's a big number. So what happened was that these people, mostly middle-aged men, they lost their jobs. And they couldn't provide and protect for their families anymore. And so they turned to drinking. What happened here was, say, Dmitry the Pipefitter had a lot of his personal story. His narrative was wrapped in how he provided for his family. And when he lost his pipefitting job, that story went away, and he was, he was lost because his narrative broke. Like, now what do I do? I only know pipe fitting, and that's it, right? So they drank and sometimes drank too much. But we see this in the data already for people in the United States where suicide in 2010 took over as the leading cause of, of non-natural death for adults in America. We see it in statistics around uh, mental health, obesity, violence, you name it. There's all these signs of distress. And we, you know, we submit to you that emotional capital is the, both the, the, the explanatory piece of that and, and, and the, the beacon around that. Because what happens if Dimitri, the pipe fitter, instead of saying, I've lost my job, I feel a little bit worthless, let me numb that worthlessness by drinking with my friends. Uh, what if instead they said, wow, uh, this whole economy is now shifting, it's shifting very, very rapidly. There's a lot of crisis. There's not as much need for pipe fitting, but there's all kinds of new needs popping up. Wait a minute. How do I fit into those? And it turns out that period of, uh, that we described, that same eight years, Chuck, was one of the most exciting periods of capital formation in all of Russia's history. And some people got fantastically rich. Right. Maybe not the right way. We can argue about the right, right. whole sure. model. But, but, it, but it was true that this was an, both, it both represented a closing and an opening at the same time. And people who had their whole inter-narrative wrapped around how they were tied to the closing part, they were unable to jump into and join the part that was opening. And that was solely determined by their emotional 
capital and by their ability to navigate into a period of change. Maybe go back to my grandfather again. I mean, here's a guy who grew up in the Great Depression, lived in a barn, really, during the Depression. The family that let him move in and live in the barn would feed him if he would work. And, you know, you ask him when, you know, what was your childhood like? He, He tells all these happy stories about, you know, how, how great this was and that was. And, and when you actually dig into it, you're like, well, you, you had parents who abandoned you and you lived in a barn and you, you know, but, but he talks about how lucky he was because he had food and he had a purpose. And you look today, I mean, I've got, uh, you know, family members who are part of the same family tree who live incredibly affluent lives. And if you talk to them, it just seemed very depressed about it all. I don't want to paint like too broad of a brush, you know, greatest generation and all that. But it it does seem like the hardship, in a sense, is one way to, uh, you know, share in that that feeling of it can either make you feel very fortunate uh, for all you have or make you feel very despaired at, uh, at you know, what you don't. And I, I don't know. I, I almost feel like we've gotten a little emotionally soft by having way too much. Well, we've, we've, we've done more than that. I, we've hamstrung ourselves by also um, uh, removing ourselves, being in these isolated places. So you mentioned people like this was me, right? In Mystic, Connecticut, from the outside looking in, anybody in the third world would be like, oh, dude, you have so much, right? And I <laughs> right. absolutely did, right? But I was leading a very lonely but successful life. And it turns out that without a support system, I didn't even know how to begin, how to begin asking for help, knowing that I needed help, knowing that things could be different. I had no frame of reference whatsoever. So I could look back on that period and say, well, I was drinking a lot more than I do now. And, you know, I was, I was fundamentally, I think, not nearly as happy as I am today through no fault of my own. I just, I just didn't have a model. I didn't, I didn't come from a culture that, that let me know that there was another way. But now we know. We know that we can build up our emotional capital. We know that social interactions and those threads and ropes we build with people. It's not just how many people we know. Do we know their names? We know what they, they do. But, but really knowing people, like why they are the way they are, getting to know ourselves, that these are actually keys to both resilience and happiness. And these are all things that, that you know, I've stumbled across. And, of course, as soon as I did, I was like, wow, look at this stuff I discovered. Oh, wait, people have known this forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know we're getting short on time, and I, so I want to ask you about time capital. And, and really, I, I, I have these two chronometers that travel around with me. You know, they, they mark time. They remind me that the days are slipping by. The, the course being my, my two daughters. I've got a nine-year-old and 11-year-old. I, I know you have kids. You know, we start with financial capital in this conversation, which is important, but I thought your chapter on time capital was just beautiful and, and really, really essential. What is time capital, and how do we kind of maximize time capital? Well, time capital is, is the one thing that everybody has less of today than they had yesterday. We all share that. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor or any of that. And, and so the invitation in the time capital part is to, is to understand that uh, we only have a limited time on this, on this earth, and nobody knows how much they have, right? Um, we all like to think that, that we've got, you know, we'll all live to be the age of our oldest grandparent or something, but we don't know. And so in time capital, it is, uh, it's really this invitation to get back to the present, get back to, you know, how are you being in this moment, um, and to get away from the idea that you know how much time you've got left. It, it, to be alive is really 
is a sacred thing, and, and to really understand you know, how magical it is to be alive is to be renewed with gratitude as well. So that gratefulness your, your grandfather talked about um, that, that somehow seems elusive. Time, understanding time is a way to get back into and to find uh, gratitude um, for being here, being here at all, but uh, being here and being healthy, being here and, and uh, making the most of what we can. And so there's a little thread of urgency in this one as well. I, I don't know how long our current system is going to persist. Is it a year? Is it a week? Is it 10 more years? Is it 100? I don't know. Um, but I do know that it's unsustainable. And so the urgency comes in with saying there's really no time like right now to begin taking that first or your next step um, into greater resilience, uh, greater connectedness with, with uh, your life today and with the people around you. So I feel like, you know, I really kind of wrote that chapter for myself because I fell into the trap of believing that I, that I had lots of time, right? And your, your chronometers will tell you that even as you hold that belief, something else is happening, which is called time, and it's racing by. Um, so, so that's really a, a you know, portion of what's in that, that particular chapter. You wrote in the book that resiliency is a journey. I, I, I want to know, kind of as a closing thought, what was your inspiration for this book? Why, what, what are you trying to achieve by writing this book? Well, it's, it's, it's in the subtitle on the, on the front cover, uh, which is Creating a World Worth Inheriting. And I'm of the mind that the current trajectory that humans are on is one that's unsustainable. It could easily, if, if allowed to unconsciously persist, lead us to bad outcomes and that are avoidable. And that uh, I would really love to begin both alerting people to what those trends are, but more importantly, to, to note that we can begin living today in ways that actually enhance our lives and begin to steer the ship in a new direction away from those shoals that, that we can see coming. The fact that we can do all of these things and have a happier, more fulfilled, enriching life while being regenerative rather than extractive in our practices, while being more relational and grounded in those relationships and transactional in how we deal with each other and the world around us, that we can have this fuller experience that's at, at the same time better for us and better for the world and better for um, the people who come after us. That to me feels like a win-win-win, and so that's my life's work and my mission is to just keep raising that and, and putting that out there. So, so that's the big grand vision and dream of why I do what I do. Chris Martinson, it's been beautiful to talk to you. I, I, I want to make sure people are plugged into your site, peakprosperity.com. You can uh, go search on iTunes or any of your podcasting uh, sites for the Peak Prosperity podcast, and you'll get weekly, biweekly, pretty frequent uh, podcasts with Chris interviewing uh, guests, and they're, they're fascinating. Lots of great stuff there. You, you have inspired me by the way you have made your videos and your worksheets and so much of your stuff available for people. It's really an inspiring way you've gone about trying to make the world a better place. So I, I thank you for, uh, for everything you've done and, and for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's been my pleasure to talk with you and to whoever was listening. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and uh, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. 
pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 